Happy Tuesday, everybody, and welcome to December's Fixed Tuesday podcast. And we appreciate you taking the time today to listen to our ramblings. Um, I'm Tom Boyer, Director of Security at Automox, and joining me today is Ryan. Ryan, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Ryan Bronstein, uh, Security Engineer at Automox. So. And we also have Jason Kikta. You want to say hi, Jason? Hi, I'm Jason Kikta. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at Automox and also the Senior VP of Product. Woohoo! A CISO and a VP of product. What a dangerous wow. combination, isn't that? <laughs> <laughs> they asked me if I wanted to do more, and I was too dumb to say no. <laughs> well, cool. So we made it December, last Patch Tuesday of the year. And, you know, nobody's ruined Christmas yet. <laughs> so that is exciting. That is exciting. And it's funny because you and I made a joke about November being a very light month for Patch Tuesday and December is even lighter. That always makes me wonder, you know, is that a sign of improvement or does it just mean that a lot of folks are busy working on something bad and horrible? <laughs> They're all out there busy uh, building our new AI overlords. Skynet. Yeah. Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Skynet that doesn't know how many fingers a person has in a picture. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you know, this, this patch Tuesday is, geez, the lightest I could remember in honestly a very long time, right? I always feel like there's some CVE, you know, that keeps me up at night and, you know, not necessarily the case this month, but you know, I think the first one that really popped into our, our mind, right, is CVE 2023-35618, which is this edge um, elevation of privilege vulnerability. And, you know, it's rated critical. And essentially, you know, according to the notes, it's it could lead to a browser sandbox escape. And, and then, <laughs> so it's interesting to me that they, you know, it, it has a, a base score of 9.6, you know, nearly maxes it out. And then a temporal score of 8.3, it's rated critical, but then they talk about it being rated as moderate because of the preconditions um, and the user interaction. But then you read the preconditions and the user interaction and it's like, well, they'd have to host a website or a website that accepts user-generated content. And, you, you know, then the user would have to be tricked into going there and would have to click it. And, and like, you're literally describing phishing. Like, this is, you know, 20, 30 years of phishing. Like, what are we doing here? Like, <laughs> if, if that's our, um, you know, standard for complex, uh, I would hate to see simple. So, uh, you know, and then it it's worsened because it implies a sandbox breakout. And then it talks about um, that they could gain the privileges needed to perform code execution and, and like, okay, so like this is, you know, RCE, um, you know, through a phishing link. So it's, to me, that's pretty critical. I, I just, I feel like this one's being downplayed a bit uh, unless they're just withholding some, really weird twist uh that yeah. they didn't even want to hint at uh it's hard to see how this isn't just you know pure fishing fodder uh, so ryan I, I i'm curious for your thoughts though you know do, do you think i have that right or do you think that the danger is is you know minimized because of that interaction requirement 
or that, you know, there's perhaps other controlling mitigations. Like if you're not running Edge as your default browser, but instead have something like Chrome or Firefox, if, if that'll reduce it. Um, I think because Windows is so reliant on Edge, like all like the integrated apps within it, you're going to end up interacting with it regardless. Uh, and a lot of times without browser plugins like uBlock Origin and things of that nature that might necessarily protect you using Firefox or Chrome. And so I think it would definitely be upgraded uh, because of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the danger of integrated browser components okay. is that, you know, it's, you're still using it whether you know it or not, and you're using it sometimes without the benefits of some of your security, security oriented uh, plugins. Yeah. And I feel like these, these types of vulnerabilities are, I don't know, trending upwards, right? Like, you know, you think about November and really through 2023, and I feel like this is out of, even on Mac, right? All the CVEs, or at least all the critical ones that I've seen that I remember this year are like browser-based, sandbox escape, you know, memory vulnerabilities. The trend is shifting, though, because if you think about it, um, you know, the web browser in many ways is the modern OS because we have so many HTML-based applications. Uh, and, you know, they've there's been a big push within the browser manufacturing industry to develop better controls around uh, sandboxing and memory protections and, you know, reducing the predictability of cookie naming. But, you know, that, that only goes so far. And I think that, you know, it's also tied to the prevalence of SaaS applications uh, for modern businesses and large organizations. You know, when, when you're using SAS, that cookie can be your password and that cookie, you know, that like, like that's your entry point. So, you know, while this talks about it could, you know, allow them to perform code execution, getting outside the sandbox gets you closer to those cookies. And, and like the user may not even be the true target here, but that user's access to some cloud portal or SAS application might actually be the intended target. And so like, there's a lot of attack scenarios where this is going to be a very useful um, exploit because it gets you into that sweet spot of, I can steal the cookies. I can take over the user machine. I can watch what they're doing within the browser. Like all of those are extremely um, useful to attackers uh, across a range of scenarios. Right. I think we're headed towards more of like a Chromebook based model in the enterprise where there's not really a desktop, it's all done in the browser and you know, where are you going to go now? Right. Yeah. And I think we're still a ways off from, you know, the true Chromebook experience for um, the majority of users. But in the meantime, you know, we have a lot of these compromised bridge apps where, you know, if you look at how, Microsoft Office functions today, you know, a lot of that backend stuff is thrown off to the cloud. Like it's, it's heavy desktop app on the front and, you know, uh, an extension of their SaaS uh, platform on the backend. And then you have others where it's even more transparent, where you look at things like Slack, right? Electron apps are huge, 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 uh, 
Um, the thing that's always scares me about Electron is a lot of that sandboxing doesn't exist uh, or is curtailed yeah. significantly. And so that impetus to exploit in this realm just goes up and up and up. Yeah, agreed. All right, shifting focus. So, you know, we kind of touched on it briefly, desktop apps, and, you know, we talked about moving off of that. But there's an interesting one in the Outlook client right? CVE 2023-35628, which is um, an RCE and MSHTML. And, you know, reading the patch notes, basically what this reads to me is a no user interaction, no notification, possibly RCE in Outlook in the preview pane. So, right, an attacker creates a malicious link or malicious email, sends it to the user and you know, obviously they'll probably delete it before the user sees it, but it very, very much reminds me of the, uh, the NSO group type, you know, zero click attack, but this time it, it seems very focused on Outlook and not iOS and similar. This definitely screams either higher end commercial actor like NSO or high end state actor, uh, you know, again, Five Eyes, uh, Russia, China, Israel. This would all be within their capability envelopes to develop this uh, uh, exploit that, that gets you those features you really want of the victim never knows. The victim doesn't have to actually do anything, but you still get um remote code execution on their machine and so you can do you know whatever arbitrary actions you dream up uh and the bar is high right there's complex memory shaping techniques that have to be used to um to leverage this but that's again like that's where they excel is they those types of actors are able to overcome that barrier um now that being said you know this type of exploit getting burned and being patched is still a, a significant blow to them. You know, there's a lot of time and development effort that goes into this. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's obviously proving fruitful. And the fact that these have been burned with somewhat regularity over the last two or three years, doesn't tell me, um, that they're going out of style. Uh, you know, it, it does say that, the industry is getting better at detecting them and mitigating them, but it also says that those actors are willing to bear those costs and, and keep working along these lines of uh, exploitation. Yeah. And luckily, though, for a lot of us in the space, just because it's deleted from the, you know, the user's device doesn't necessarily mean it was deleted from like a transaction log or an audit log. And so... You know, back in November, around November 30th, uh, Apple released the, their latest update, 14.1.2 uh, on macOS devices. And then obviously iOS, it was like, you know, 16.7.1, et cetera. But, you know, two kind of, two big ones came out of that. And, you know, the one that I wanted to kind of talk through is CVE 2023-14917, which reads very similar to the, the one in Edge we talked about earlier, but it's an, you know, processing web content may lead to arbitrary code execution. And, you know, Apple is aware that this is under exploitation. And, you know, Apple's very good at providing long, 
descriptions, right? A member encryption vulnerability was addressed with improved locking, right? That tells me so much. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but this is another one of those, like, not to always play the blame game, right? But I, I feel like we're we're in this trend where it's hard to get on an iOS device or a macOS device without attacking like WebKit or iMessage or those similar like NSO group attacks. And, you know, I don't think this is going away. And, you know, I'm curious your thoughts, Jason. I mean, not only is it going away, but I think it's, I think there, you know, there's both a good and bad here, right? The good news is it's really fantastic that Apple's been able to herd most of the exploitation in their ecosystem down to applications uh, and processes that parse unsolicited payloads from, uh, you know, other users, right? So like an iMessage, anyone can send you uh, a message, right? Unless you're in lockdown mode. Um, so, so people are texting you, they're sending you things. Uh, and then the system has to take that and parse that. And it's in that parsing of the text of the binary that, um, you know, the exploitation occurs, right? They're looking for parsing errors where they can give it irregular input and get the system into an unsafe state. So yeah. these, this, this one's interesting. And actually I want to bring up a related one because, you know, the one we're talking about is CVE 2023-42917, but 42916 uh, also came at the same time. They're both from the same researcher at Google Tag. And, uh, you know, that one's an out-of-bounds read uh, addressed with Im improved input validation. Thank you, Apple, for your terrible notes. Uh, but that implies to me that these were probably being used uh, as, as a pair. Uh, you know, these were yeah. part of a single exploit chain. Uh, and so... This again screams something like NSO group or top tier state actor. Yeah. So this affects iOS, iPad OS, uh, Mac OS. Uh, they didn't mention TVOS, whether that's a little interesting, but but more interestingly is that they released a patch for Sonoma, but not Ventura. And, and that's Great. but they talk about uh, iOS versions before 16.7.1 being affected. So it would have been around in the right era. And I'm just wondering what right. was different about Ventura that uh, allowed it to uh, escape needing a patch here. Yeah. And they also reused the patch notes, right? It, I, I feel <laughs> like they just copy and pasted it through all, through all of them, which, you know, I get it. Maybe they are rushing, but I, you know, maybe a little bit more due diligence on how we, how we're releasing these CVEs. Um, but I do appreciate them doing, right, these quick security updates. You know, if you remember, I think they started that this year where Apple, you know, went on this like security release cycle where instead of bundling security vulnerabilities within other patches, they, they do these out of band. And, you know, I think that's important because the, tr the trend is attacking WebKit attacking iOS, iMessage, et cetera. And, you know, waiting months for a fix is just not going to cut it, you know, especially yeah. to us in the enterprise that use Macs <clears throat> and that secure Macs, right? Because, you know, there, there are protections, 
but really, you know, the best protection that we have is getting those things updated and Mac OS updates are, have always been difficult without an MDM, right? It requires user interaction and you need to click the link and you need to click update. And, you know, that, that hasn't necessarily been solved for by many vendors yet. Yeah, and I've been around long enough that I recall when there was a big push in the industry to do more consolidation of patching uh, because patching meant touch labor, either physically or virtually, and it was so onerous to do it and to cycle through it that the more you could apply at once, the better. But that's not really the state of the art anymore. Uh, you have auto update for individuals. I know I'm biased here, but you have patch management for enterprise. And so having more patches is not necessarily a significant impact uh, because you have automated solutions to deploy and uh, implement those patches. And, and, you know, it's, it's still a far better thing to have it available than not have it available because the reality is this WebKit vulnerability and the Outlook one that we discussed earlier, they don't affect every organization, but you know, yeah. those things that are valuable to state-based actors, you know, it's, it's critically important. And so if you're a defense contractor, if you're a ministry of foreign affairs, because all of them seem to get hacked on the regular, um, you know, think tanks, I, and, and then, you know, that broadens outward more so than I think people generally appreciate, you know, in the 2020 election cycle, when I was working at Cyber Command, you know, we had to release an advisory from the U.S. government about, um, you know, Russian state actors hacking into schools, schools that yeah. happen to be um, election sites. Now, they couldn't get from there to the to the actual polling machines. That was impossible. And so, you know, I'm still personally a little bit uh, undecided on whether they thought that they might have a path to target there or whether they were just trying to create noise and friction for us. Um, but, you know, it doesn't matter those educational institute institutions and local municipalities who got hacked, like they still had an issue. And, you know, within another election coming up, like their impetus to put in patches for things that are a little more advanced is going to go up again. And so they're going to have to handle these sorts of things. Yeah. And to your point around elections and, you know, I think about like where I am, there's almost all the voting stations are at churches, right? Mm -hmm. When was the last time someone talked about church IT? <laughs> right, right. You know, and... that's an MSP probably that has thousands of devices maybe. And, you know, they're probably heavily focused on Windows and not necessarily focused on Mac, right? Right. And I, I think that's, go ahead, Ryan. I said, or somebody's nephew who's doing their IT for them. <laughs> True. Common, yes. common it's, theme for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's the nephew or the friend, uh, and you know I think that's the modern travesty of cybersecurity. And Wendy Nather, when she coined the term the the cybersecurity poverty line, you know, really encapsulated it well. That you know it's not the Fortune 500 companies who struggle with cybersecurity because they can afford to buy large, robust. Um, protections. They can hire massive teams. They can hire top-notch expertise and have all the best vendors and make technology shifts rather rapidly in, in certain areas. Uh, some of them are, are much harder, but you know, then yeah. you compare that to the things that um, are not as 
well serviced by IT and security modernization, like hospitals, schools, municipalities, small and a lot of even a lot of medium businesses, like they're really struggling and they struggle both with, um, you know, their day to day scourge of ransomware and yeah. um, business email compromise type fraud, but then they also struggle with they might inadvertently find themselves in the middle of some, uh, you know, cyberspace conflict between states because they happen to host a polling site or be of some political interest uh, for a moment. And so now they have to worry about that too. And it's just, they're not well equipped to do it. And so being able to have these patches available and get them implemented quickly just becomes really, really critical to them because they, they just, they can't do it on their own. Yeah. And so in, in closing here, right, I, I think a constant theme remains true throughout all these CVEs, throughout Patch Tuesday, and, you know, a lot of the inbound and out-of-band cycles that we go through around our endpoints is just got to keep them updated. And, you know, that's kind of kind of the reality of it. Any, any closing thoughts, Ryan? Uh, I would say also on top of that, education. Educate your users. Um, I mean, just our first vulnerability that we talked about is essentially a phishing vulnerability that can be uh, escalated into a remote code execution. So I'm keeping users up to date on you know some of these tactics could really make your life easier in the future, especially in this cloud-based world that we are now living in. So, yeah. any closing thoughts, Jason? Yeah, I'll agree with what Ryan said and and expound on it slightly that, you know, my mantra has always been that culture is the number one security measure hands down. And so I think whether you have a culture of uh, patching regularly and often or whether it's uh, a culture of um, user education and vigilance or a culture of developing strong detection methodologies. Hopefully it's all of the above. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, these threats uh, develop and come onto the scene rather rapidly and being able to uh, rely on that security culture that you've set to carry you through is, is the most critical thing that you can do. Agreed. You yeah. know, if you can get your grandma to keep her Mac updated and, you know, I'm pretty sure you could get everyone else. <laughs> so much of security is actually just very good IT hygiene. And I think that's a deeply unappreciated fact. Yeah. And to uh, plug a little bit, speaking of hygiene, Jason and I will be talking today in a, in a webinar around PowerShell signing. So if you are curious as to what PowerShell signing actually is, you know, join the webinar and we're going to kind of go into a little deep dive and talk about threats and kind of risk to the organization. But with that, thanks for tuning in. And I look forward to our January episode where we talk about all the horrible things that happened in the latter half of December. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> thanks everyone. Thank you. Happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs>